Welcome to the Last Adopter Podcast, brought to you by CA Technologies, the one podcast for businesses who want to digitally transform and need to learn how, with Lewis Black as the voice of unreason. I laugh, ha 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 ha, when I hear the words cybersecurity. There doesn't seem to be any such thing. The people who can read code or speak code or know what a page full of numbers means are one moral compass breakdown from your checking account. There is no such thing as cybersecurity. I was better off when I stashed my money in a suitcase under my bed, and it made for an easy getaway if necessary. I can't even trust the machine that scans my groceries. It gets something wrong, at least one thing, every time I go shopping. Take a look at your receipt the next time you get home from the grocery store. I bought a cantaloupe. Not three pounds of goat cheese. I put a piece of tape over the camera lens on my computer today. I used to think that was the equivalent of putting a tinfoil hat on my head. I'm desperate to get my own TV show, but I'm worried about someone watching me screaming when I ask the computer to help me. It looks at you. It might as well be laughing at you. (laughs) I can hear it laughing. I'm Mike Walker for Bloomberg Media Studios. I'm joined today by George Johnson, Vice President for Cyber Solutions at NC4, a digital security company. Welcome, George. Hey, thanks, Mike. Can you tell us about NC4 and what your role there is? Yeah, so my role at NC4, I'm both Vice President and the Chief Security Officer. My role there is to try to bring security practices across all of our product lines, as well as to expose our customers to high security products that meet the needs of our customers sharing very, very sensitive information. In addition to being a cybersecurity expert, you're also a big Lewis Black fan. So I have to ask, what did you think of Lewis's take on cybersecurity? You know, he's right on, and I like his take at it, right? Because code is everywhere, right? Cybersecurity is everywhere. It's at the checkout line at the grocery store. One little mistake and your information is out in the world or uh, you're buying the wrong thing. So I think he was right on with just nailing the fact that software is now everywhere and you're going to experience it everywhere. I think everyone understands that we're in the app economy now where software is everything and apps are the primary tools for doing business. But as a security expert, you have an interesting take. You say that buying an app is like hiring an employee. Why is that? Well, if you think about it, we spend a lot of time and a lot of resource, and I see the HR slogans all over the place. You know, our most valuable asset is here, our people. And we spend a lot of time vetting our people to make sure that we've got the right people doing the right job. And don't get me wrong, that's extremely important. But we don't spend any time really looking at our software. So software developers will grab free software off of the net from virtually anywhere, mix it in with a bunch of stuff they're writing, and then push it up. And that's part of your product now. And your brand relies on that. So we need to start thinking a little bit differently about how we integrate and build software. Where do we get it from? And there's a new community of practice standing up called the Software Supply Chain Working Group. And this all kind of comes together, right? So if you want to build a piece of software, you're going to mash it up from a lot of different pieces. You better know where it came from. So we need to spend more time, quote unquote, interviewing the software that we're going to put together to support our brand and support our names to make sure that it's going to have high assurance, that it's going to do the right thing, and it's not just going to fail at a really, really inappropriate time. So how far does this metaphor extend? Have you had a piece of software that did great in the job interview, but then when you did the background check, all these red flags appeared? 
Oh, absolutely. And even large brand names. And, you know, I'm not going to bash any company, but very large brand names put out software that have a lot of vulnerabilities in it. So what we did is we put in place a process where we check a lot of repositories of bugs to see how many bugs does a piece of software have. So all else being equal, if I need to get a web server up and running, there may be 10 of them on the market. Some of them open source, some proprietary, some are very expensive, some are cheap. But you can check the bug history of all of them. And if the bug history is low or minimal and it does everything you need it to, that would be the product of choice. The other one might have a very heavy brand name to it. But if it's got a lot of vulnerabilities open against it, that's not the kind of thing you want to line up with. And I guess another reason the interview metaphor works so well is that no software is perfect, right? Oh, absolutely no. No, no. So it's just like spelling, right? I'm a great typist, but I still make typing errors. There's an old joke in software development. There's this thing called debugging. That's where you're going through your code and you're trying to find bugs and take them out. You know what the act of putting the bugs in is? It's called coding, right? We all make mistakes. At NC4, you work with Fortune 500 companies and large government agencies to enact cyber solutions. So how did you get started in that work? Well, it was kind of interesting. So I got interested in how you could misuse software pretty early on in my career. I would see things that other people had written, and I would say, I wonder what would happen if, and I would start kind of tampering with it and toying with it a little bit. So I got interested in what you could do if you were going to modify that software, and I started seeing all kinds of problems with the software as it was written. So I fortunately took the right turn. So I became a white hat. I became a researcher. I became someone interested in how to write software that has higher software assurance properties, more security involved in it, as opposed to becoming a black hat, where I guess if I had just slightly fewer ethics, like Lewis Black said, you know, if I had taken that left turn, I'd be living on a beach someplace, probably having taken a lot of money from banks, but looking over my shoulder all the time. So with the companies that you work with, I mean, clearly NC4 builds apps that manage very sensitive information. At what stage in the development of these apps do you start thinking about security? So this is really critical. You've got to start thinking about this early on, really at the time you start architecting it. And I like to make the analogy all the time that building software is just like building a house. If you have an expectation that you want a three-story house, you sort of know that going in. But if you start building the house and you get to the third story and say, wow, I'd really like eight more stories, if your foundation isn't deep enough, the whole thing's going to fall over. So you can't just make it up as you go. You have to sort of know what you're going to do early on. Building in security from the start, how does it affect the development life cycle? Does it slow it down or does it make it easier because you've considered security at the very beginning? That's kind of the interesting part. And there's a huge misunderstanding when it comes to this. So most software developers like to be creative. And when you pose a problem to them, they like to hit the keyboard and figure out how to solve that problem in a lot of different ways. The problem is that if you don't start thinking about what the ultimate solution is going to be, before, you wind up painting yourself into corners that you never thought about. And then the act of getting out of the corners is literally where most of the vulnerabilities come in. Because you're starting now to get creative and you're trying to rework the system at the last possible minute. So that becomes a real problem and it leads to some interesting opportunities in the market as well, where we need to change the mindset of developers to get creative in the early process and that architecture work before you hit the keyboard. In the app economy, Every company wants new methods of customer engagement, new channels, new approaches. How much more pressure is there now on development teams? And how is the traditional approach to security adapting to these new demands? Yeah, so I think there's a huge amount of pressure on everyone in the app economy. And I've even heard venture capitalists in San Jose say things like, 
you'll know you're successful when the bad guys start attacking your software. Right? So in other words, don't even think about it until you get something that can start to attract a revenue model and then start to think about security. Unfortunately, it's really, really late and your whole company can turn upside down when you have to blow up your architecture, rewrite all of your software, and you'll wind up going out of business or you'll wind up just living with a ton of risk. So the go-to-market timing really stresses the marketplace in terms of trying to get security in. I never thought about that, that the, the hacking attempt would almost be a form of validation. Exactly, right? So, I mean, if you think about it, and, and again, I don't want to talk about any specific company, but there's an operating system that's probably, you know, at this point, it's high 80s, almost 90% of the market still. That's where the hackers go, right? So there's an old joke. Why do you uh, rob banks? That's where the money is. Why do you go after this operating system? Because that's 90% of the market. If I can break that, I get a lot more computers for my return. When we talk about this pressure that developers are under and companies are under to bring new apps to market, does that lead to apps being released before they're secure? And if that's the case, are there steps that companies can take to guard against that? Yeah, absolutely. And again, this goes back towards doing architecture work. And there's another aspect to it as well. The what you build depends as much on how you build it as the what you build into it, right? So the how you build it. Start with the architecture work. A lot of apps in this app economy are being built by small teams. With a small team, there come some really interesting pressures, right? Not everybody can be an expert on everything. So you wind up with a bunch of generalists. And this is where you can outsource some very specific work, especially in the security space, right? So with the way we're developing applications right now, you get a small team, they're writing code and they're putting it onto a development build server. You can outsource the scanning of that code, dynamic scans, static scans, and you can yield out 60 to 70% of bugs and vulnerabilities before you go out to production. That's a really great number. That gets you into what's called the highest performing category of IT development. This podcast is about the last adopter and why it's so important for people and companies to have the courage and leadership to change their traditional ways of doing business. I wanted to ask you, in your career, have you faced any challenges that forced you to adopt to new ways of doing things? Oh, absolutely. I probably made most of the mistakes that every developer makes. I try to learn from them, and I encourage other people to do it too. But when I went to Carnegie Mellon, I took this class. It was called the Personal Software Process class. And it was a challenge class. You have to write 10 programs. So in the course of writing the programs, you have to keep a lot of statistics about what you do, how much time it takes, how many bugs you put in there. And everybody in the class thought, this is a total waste of time. I'm managing myself more than I'm just writing the code. I could do this a lot faster. But by the fifth program, when we started to look at our statistics, I don't know if you remember what I was talking about doing architecture early, it became blazingly clear that just by writing simple little 20 and 50 line programs, that if we had taken a little bit more time in design and architecture, the maintenance cost of our software would have gone down tremendously. By the eighth program, we were all believers. Everybody that stayed in the program, a couple people dropped because they just didn't see the value early on. Everybody that stayed got it. And just really, it hit me like a bolt of lightning that instead of hitting the keyboard and trying to be creative there, I could be creative at the architecture and design level. It was an epiphany to me, and I try to pass that on to my developers. So if the creativity is not happening when your fingers are on the keyboard, where is that creativity happening? So it really happens in the business and the technology discussion. Right? So if you pose a problem to a technologist, you'll usually get something like a requirement that says change the cog ratio from 1.7 to 2. But if you change the language of that a little bit and you have a discussion with them and you say, we want P 
people to be able to ride uphill on bicycles a little bit easier, the developer will go, oh, we could do that 10 different ways. I can change the size of the tires. I can change the cogs. And all of a sudden, they're thinking out of the box. You're getting them back into what the problem statement is and the design of the problem to try to get a solution, as opposed to coming to them and saying, change the widget, right? So you're actually allowing them to get involved in that creative discussion. And just to bring it back to what you were talking about before, which I think has a lot of parallels with this, this means that security doesn't have to compete against functionality, right? Oh, absolutely not. And I see this discussion all the time. It kind of really upsets me. And part of the problem, I think, is that we still view these things as two separate disciplines. I go to security conferences, and they talk about what I call right of boom, right? In other words, when a bad thing happens, how did we remediate it? What forensics did we do? But left of boom, where all the architectural work is, where the preventative work is, where the creative thought is about what are these hackers going to try to do, and how can I make this system prevent that better? That's where the really cool work is. What we need to do is to get the right of boom people talking to and informing the left of boom people so that we can more robustly architect solutions. You talked about how this was an epiphany for you, really kind of seeing the value of doing the thinking before you put the fingers on the keyboard, as you say. How do you change the mindset of your employees, your colleagues, your customers on building security in apps from the beginning? How do you help them have the same epiphany that you did? Well, you know, it's a little bit tricky because I took it as a class, so I could elect to spend as much time as I wanted. In the workforce, I can't just take them offline to, to go do things. But what I do is I start to collect some metrics, right, some measurements about their work. Most coders don't want to have any measurement at all about what they do. They just want to go and attack their work and get it done. So what I do is I look and I try to figure out how much time do they spend actually building something. And then if there's a go back to it, if they have to go back and fix something in security or a bug or something else, I keep track of how much time that was. And then I start showing them the graphs of what does this look like and where are they spending most of their time? And I say, do you really want to spend all of your time fixing old broken code? Or do you want to spend your time coming up with new, interesting ideas? And you pose it as a problem to them about where they want to go with their career, and they'll start to make the choices. How do you know when you're successful changing hearts and minds? What do you see your employees or your customers start to do where you say, I'm really getting through to them? When I get the technologist involved in the business-level discussions and the outcomes to the customers, that's a quality discussion. Security is a property of quality. And when you've got your developers and your technical staff engaged in quality discussions, security is going to emerge from that. So, George, this has been a fascinating conversation. I'm so glad you decided to become a white hat hacker and not a black hat hacker. Thank you for joining us on the Last Adopter podcast, and I look forward to talking to you again in the future. Well, I hope I'm not the last adopter, so uh, thanks a lot for your time. Now we're joined by Sam King. General Manager for the Veracode Business Unit at CA Technologies. Welcome, Sam. Can you tell us what kind of work you do at Veracode? Sure, and thank you for having me. Veracode is in the business of securing the world software. We were acquired by CA Technologies earlier this year, and we work with enterprises from lots of different industry sectors and lots of different sizes. We help them secure the software that they're delivering to their customers and their partners. We had the last adopter, Lewis Black, on earlier, who said there's no such thing as cybersecurity. And then we heard from George Johnson at NC4 about how thinking about securities becoming central to app development. I wanted to ask you what the challenges companies face are when they want to make cybersecurity a core part of their development process. 
Yeah. Great comments by both of them. And part of the reason why it feels like there's no such thing as cybersecurity is that cyberspace itself is constantly changing, right? Technology doesn't stay stagnant. So the nature of the threats that you're facing and the targets of those threats and the targets of those attacks are constantly changing. And therein lies one of the challenges is that you're not defending something that remains static over time. It's a very dynamic environment when you look at the software infrastructure that is running companies' businesses. So some of the complexity just comes from the constantly evolving environment and the proliferation of applications. The other problem that comes into the picture is that when you think about software developers, they are creative people, they have pride of ownership, but first and foremost, their responsibility and what they are uh, really incented to do is to produce software functionality on time and on budget if they can. Security is not necessarily a requirement from the earliest stages of software development. And security is also not something that a lot of developers have been trained on. These combination of factors basically lead you to a place where a lot of software is being written, but security is an afterthought. George Johnson of NC4 said something interesting earlier. He said that companies need to review software the same way they would hire an employee. They need to check references of software and do background checks on software. What do you think of that analogy? Yeah, it's an interesting concept to talk about, right? Especially when you talk about automation replacing labor in some aspects of our economy. The fact of the matter is that as that happens, and let's say you have uh, physical devices or other things that are essentially employees in some respects, what's running those physical devices is software. That's IoT, right? It's all of these physical devices that now have software that makes them interconnected and then their functionality can be further enhanced. And if you think of it in that regard, just like you would go through an interview process when you're hiring an employee to make sure that they meet the standards that you have inside your organization, and just like you would bring them through some onboarding process when they first start so they understand how they are expected to perform, the context of the business around them, the same can be said for software. You can, quote unquote, interview your software by making sure that you are reviewing it for security vulnerabilities as you're producing it or as part of bringing on board a new software application that you've acquired from some third party. It feels like cybersecurity is in the news every day now, and there's a lot of awareness around the importance of it. But I know Veracode's been in this business for more than 10 years, and it hasn't always been like that. Could you talk, I guess, how has the conversation around security changed? And then also, what makes you excited about the future based on developments and the awareness you're seeing among the people you work with of the importance of cybersecurity and in bringing in cybersecurity as part of the development process? I think the fact that cybersecurity has become mainstream and where people recognize that as this trend of technology adoption continues, as this trend of every company turning into a software company continues, it cannot happen. It's not sustainable without cybersecurity also going alongside because the proliferation of applications otherwise just becomes untenable because of the risk exposure that any company has. The other thing that has changed is that when we started to do this going back a little over 10 years, the question that I found myself answering for a lot of people was, convince me why I should do software security in particular, right? I have firewalls, I'm spending all of this money on infrastructure security, 
manage services, etc. Why do I need to check my software? Convince me why this is important. And now the question that I find myself answering is not why should I do software security, but how should I do software security? That's a very good place for us to find ourselves in because you are not evangelizing the reason for why you should engage in this exercise. You are evangelizing a solution approach instead. Sam, this has been great. I, th- I think you may have even changed Lewis's mind on cybersecurity. <laughs> he should probably still check his uh, grocery receipt, though, I imagine. Yeah, I'm going to start doing that as well. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on the Last Adopter podcast, and I look forward to talking to you again in the future. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Please join us next time as we help Lewis Black overcome another of his digital transformation fears. And now, a final word from the Last Adopter. I learned a lot about cybersecurity, and I'm very glad our guests weren't tempted by the dark side. We'd all be in deep trouble. You have been listening to The Last Adopter Podcast, sponsored by CA Technologies. Thanks to all our guests. To learn more about how CA Technologies can help you transform your business, visit ca.com slash modern software factory. I'm Lewis Black. Thanks for listening. This podcast, brought to you by CA Technologies, was produced by Bloomberg Media Studios.